0: Uh, this is a future driven podcast. Well, so I want to know, Raphael, at the end of it, in the future, what will you be driving? My whole thing will be, you know, driving the mission of helping
1: those that don't conform in this, this world to get into equitable positions in real estate and help them climb out of this, uh, you know, this society that they
0: feel that they might be stuck in or part of society that they feel they might be stuck in. Welcome to Future Driven. I'm Adam Lejenkopp, and on this podcast, we talk about challenges and wins in business. See the vision, drive the future. Welcome to episode 49 of the Future Driven podcast. Uh, Today, I've got Raphael Bennett from Honest Deed. Raphael, thanks so much for uh, jumping on today. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh,
1: uh, Pretty stoked about uh, having a conversation with you.
0: Yeah, me too. So found you on LinkedIn, saw you had a very interesting profile and just an interesting business and wanted to just really dive into uh your background. And of course we'll we'll get to Honest Deed here in a minute. But why don't you give us a little bit of the lay of the land? What's your background? Um, and what kind of led you up to kind of where you are now?
1: Yeah, sure. So um I'm an engineer by trade. I've always, you know, led the technical side of you know, any business I've been involved in. Um, and, you know, I've mixed that, you know, with uh, with an interest in entrepreneurship when I graduated from college way, way back in the day. and uh, Nobody was really hiring. So I really had no choice but to be an entrepreneur. So I was picking up like little freelance projects uh, for, you know, just basic coding. And ultimately, you know, found myself into a situation where I was building a product and you know, after having a a good experience in doing that, I never, I never really went back. I, you know, technically I've never, never been hired, um, only through,
0: you know, acquisition, I would say. Well, you're a true bread entrepreneur then. Um, and I, I saw that you're listed as CTO and CEO. So you've got that technical background. Um, and you just mentioned you build products. So what are some of the products you've built throughout your career?
1: Yeah. So, uh, initially started my career building a, like a VR product. It was, you know, kind of before it's time we did, um, we built, or I built, my team and I built a web-based, uh, VR authoring platform. So without any special software or anything else, you could build these, you know, virtual environments, kind of like Google Street View, but for indoors. Um, and then we also had kind of a little twist, which was, um, you know, exporting scenes out of uh, like 3ds max out of, of of spaces that didn't really exist um, and getting those, you know, onto the web so that people could explore them. And the, the quality of them were it was so real because we pre-rendered all of the, uh, what we call, you know, textures. Most people couldn't tell that the space wasn't real. So that was Webwalk. Uh, you know, I, you know, built that till about December 2015 and then moved on to um, my next project, which was a social media management and crisis management over social media for pretty much every super luxury hotel brand in the world that was BCD social. Um, and I worked there as the, you know, the, the chief technology officer refactored, you know, uh, an offshore engineered platform, um, that, uh, and, and grew that business, uh, till about. I want to say it was June or July 2019, and then we we sold that to RateGain, which is a as uh, a public uh,
0: you know Indian based company. Great. And so then, uh, was it just a couple of years ago? How did honest deed uh, come to fruition? You know, obviously it it sounds like it you you've been developing products, so it's probably been something you've been thinking about for a little while. But how did that really start to come fruition in the last couple of years? It's kind of a really crazy story. It goes back to,
1: um, you know, a, a different time in my life where, uh, my, my, my first son, my oldest son now, uh, was, was really sick and he's fine today. You never know that anything was ever wrong with him, but, uh, he went through two, you know, cancer battles and, um, you know, my wife and I, we found ourselves into a situation where, uh. We were spending everything that we had uh, in order to, you know, to to save him or take care of him, whatever you want to call it. Um, and eventually, we ended up into a situation where we, you know, had a I I basically basically called all of our creditors and put them on notice to to let them know we had a bumpy road ahead of us. And um, it was kind of in that process where our lender at the time had, you know, painted this beautiful picture of like, hey, this stuff happens all the time. Don't worry about it. Fill out these forms. Um, you know, disclose your financial situation and we'll, you know, you're not going to lose your home. Everything's going to be fine. So we, my wife and I, we did that. Very stressful time um, for us. And uh, essentially what happened is like, you know, four months later from that conversation, uh, we got a knock on the door from the sheriff and they served us a foreclosure notice. So while we thought we were going to be, uh, you know, this thing would be managed and uh, we would be taken care of. We found ourselves in kind of a foreclosure situation. So, you know, I've got a sick kid at a business that, you know, that it was just telling me about web walk. That was just kind of, you know, barely surviving, uh, new to the scene essentially. And now it was like risking that I was going to lose my house. So kind of a pretty tough times, you know, at, you know, for, for me and my family. And so, uh, in the hospital, there's this gentleman, uh, that was the, Grandfather of uh, a kid that was next to ours. And I was kind of uh, sobbing it, you know, sobbing it up and kind of, you know, explaining uh, the situation that we were in. And he basically said, Hey, if you're going to lose your house, you should try to find, uh, you know, a way to buy a home with seller finance terms. So that if you did lose your home, you'd be able to move in that. So essentially essentially, what we did. We, I went out and found up, you know, a, a family that was willing to sell or finance a home without any you know credit check or it was just like an agreement between two people, kind of like in a rental agreement. Um and I rented that property out month to month um, and in the event that, you know, I could just give notice and say, hey, you know, we need to move into the property. So that was my first experience with seller finance. Um, and from that point, um, you know, I never really, we never really needed that property. Um, And, but leading up to that, I had to like defend myself from this foreclosure case. And so every day on the way to either the hospital or to work, I know it sounds crazy, but I would stop at the Daily Center on like the ninth and 10th floors, if I remember correctly. And it's where all the foreclosure proceedings were. And this was like in uh, 2000, this is like in 2010, I want to say. Okay. And so I'd walk up to the ninth, tenth floor, and I would just sit in these foreclosure proceedings and just observe. Like if I was going to try to defend myself, I had no idea how how the proceedings worked, what kind of defenses there were. And you know, after days and days, it's like people just getting you know judgment of foreclosure left to right, losing their homes. But every now and then, there'd be an attorney that would have you know some kind of defense that would kind of pause everybody up. And so I jot down the case numbers, and I would go down to the law library, pull the cases, and I would take pictures with my phone. Uh, all of the you know case files, and I would read about them, and it kind of led down this crazy path of, you know, uh, you know, the right to challenge, the right to foreclose based on securitization, and all of these other little you know nuances of the mortgage credit industry. I just found it fascinating. So, being the curious engineer that I am, I you know started prying into that uh, and doing research, and I became you know, I think very versed and the conversation and the, the, the flows of how all that worked. And, you know, as an engineer, you kind of have this conversation with yourself, which is like, Hey, I think I can do that better. And if I ever find the opportunity in my life to make a difference there, uh, I'm totally going to do it. And that's essentially what happened. I had thought of this idea, you know, 10 years ago. It's just, I never had the opportunity to really, well, one, you know, fintech wasn't where it is today technology isn't where it is today. Society isn't as comfortable with FinTech as they are today. And so timing, I think, was everything, but opportunity and preparation kind of, you know, collided and and that's what, you know, so I guess you would say my affinity for software engineering, finance, and economics kind of all collided and came together and boom. Honesty. Uh,
0: that's awesome. Well, first, thanks for sharing that story. And and, you know, it's really great to hear that, you know, through life's adversities, you know, something so positive comes out of that. And for everybody that's listening and watching, can you give us a little bit of a simple breakdown of fintech in that whole world um, today? Because I think there's some unknown exactly what that means, and would we'll love to kind of hear your your take on that.
1: Yeah, I think that you know fintech is essentially, uh, in my perspective, the uh, the the distance or. Um, You know distancing ourselves from reliance on institutions to transact right that to me seems to be from a consumer perspective uh what fintech means it's just less reliance on the institution Um, and that's either good or bad i mean I, i really don't have an opinion there i just think that um fintech
0: gives most normal folks the opportunity to take things into their own hands okay that's great so then let's dig into a little bit about Honest Deed. Cause, you know, so that's, uh, you know, give us a little bit of the premise and how Honest Deed works and how it helps um, other folks not need to rely on normal institutional banks. Yeah. So, you
1: know, seller finance is exactly as it sounds today. You know, the, the classic example is that today, uh, when we buy a piece of property, the, you know, the common knowledge is that, you know, uh, we have uh, income that allows us to afford a certain payment, and then we take that, you know, that that information. We present it to, you know, a lending institution, which is your local bank or, uh, you know, an internet bank, and we make the case uh, to buy a piece of property based on, you know, the 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 income that we're able to generate. Right. So it's based on it's a loan against your in- income secured by the home. And so that's a traditional process that we that we normally take. And seller finance is more or less where the seller steps in as the position of the bank. And the benefit to them of doing that is one, they take on some risk for sure. Uh, any investment essentially is risk, but they earn the finance charge that we normally just let go of when we take a lump sum payment uh, you know, from our buyer. And so this can be there's there's a lot of benefits of doing it, especially from a taxation perspective, uh, from a retirement perspective. There is no better way that I know of where you can take you know equity that you've earned over time and immediately convert it into an asset backed cash flowing annuity. Just there's not a lot of options out there for you know the, the non sophisticated to do that.
0: Yeah. So does Indeed then follow you? walk you through the process and is, is that how they they're walking both the buyer and the seller through that yeah so uh so uh not indeed but honesty so um, <laughs> yeah, yeah no worries um you can cut that out but um <laughs> we just um, posted a couple of uh, job postings so that's probably what you did.
1: yeah thanks nice. so um yeah so essentially what we do is we provide you know, this is relatively, you know, like real estate transactions are relatively basic transactions. Um, typically, what happens? You have, you know, uh, two parties come together, either individually or with a realtor, uh, or one realtor, one without a realtor. I mean, there's many, many ways, or they can just come together with th- their attorneys, uh, and through the involvement of a title company, open an escrow, and um, you know, identify. Hey, we have this piece of property. We're going to change the title. This is how much that I'm going to, you know. Uh, Sell the property for. Um, I'm going to loan the money to the buyer, and these are all the people that are going to get paid out, and it's just kind of all sorted through, you know, in terms of who gets what and when. Um, and then the transaction gets recorded at the, you know, the recorder of deeds, and then it goes into maintenance or servicing, where you know the the buyer pays the seller, who the buyer is now the the borrower, and the seller is now the lender. Um, and that process is pretty straightforward. Where we get involved. Is from the perspective of providing a really good, you know, big bank rivaling experience for people to make payments, manage, you know, property taxes, and you know, have some, you know, uh, projected information about their property, home values, stuff like that. And then from the seller's perspective, uh, who is, you know, technically the lender at this point, we provide them with some tools that help them, you know, access liquidity. State compliant and self-service this arrangement uh, without the need of you know involving what we call like a servicing company. Um, you know servicing companies comes in come in a lot of different flavors. Some are great, some are terrible. But usually the relationship between borrower and service company um, are neutral until something bad happens, right? And it's kind of always, in my opinion, better to get to the source, the ownership, the two people that matter the the, yeah. the borrower and the lender. Um, to kind of resolve or negotiate, you know, any kind of things that bad, any, any things, anything that goes wrong that could be bad uh, in the arrangement. So that's kind of where we fit in. Um, we're really a tooling company at the end of the day. Uh, we do have our own form of seller finance. So traditional seller finance is the same, you know, arrangement that you would get at a bank. And we have an arrangement that's a little different, what we call the honest deed. And what it does is it kind of, breaks the transaction up. um, So every payment is its own instrument. Um, And the seller of the property can sell off those little instruments to other buyers so that they can access liquidity in the event that they need it. Most people are afraid to sell their finance because they think there's no cash liquidity into it. And that's really, at the end of the day, the problem that we're trying to solve. We're trying to, one, make it safe, uh, make it modernized because most of it's done with spreadsheets and snail mail. Yeah, Um, and then just trying to normalize it by reducing risk for both parties. So,
0: yeah, it's a big um, it's a big challenge, uh, but you're on the forefront of, I guess, changing a lot of people's minds and and uh, you know comfort with this type of
1: uh, lending. I think like here's the thing when you when somebody actually looks at the economics and they realize like oh I bought I'm selling my home for half a million dollars. And if they would have stayed into the transaction you know for the full duration, they'll earn another seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in financing costs, right? And we don't even think twice about it, but we're giving up a great opportunity, especially if we don't have a need for the cash, um, we're giving up a great opportunity to having you know a very a relatively low risk you know asset backed. So if the market crashes, you have an asset that you're familiar with that you can either keep, resell, resell or finance, rent whether you have many options. Um, and I think when people see the economics in a piece of paper, you know, with their own eyes and their, you know, their financial advisor, it's just like, wow, what have I been doing all these years? Just letting people come in and just finance my buyer when I could have done it myself, you know? Um, and that's the, that's what kind of drives me and my team to keep doing this is because it really is a relatively revolutionary, especially from a retirement perspective. You know, you have these folks that are, you know, think they have a retirement gap, and are looking at reverse, you know, mortgages and whatnot. And they can do a seller finance deal, move in, you know, downsize, and totally solve any kind of retirement gap that they may have thought they had.
0: So your your target market is the seller, and it is a seller that doesn't necessarily need that equity right away, and they're looking to invest back in with this seller finance kind of strategy. Correct. So they take a first
1: lien position, just like a bank does, um, their investment is in the uh, the you know the 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 interest that's generated. Um, and it gives them, you know when you think about you know capital gains, for example, if you have you know somebody in you know, for example, in Austin that has you know seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in equity, um and they only have a five hundred thousand dollars exemption, you only pay capital gains on the principal. That you've actually captured. So when you do an installment sale, like a solar finance deal, you can exhaust your five hundred thousand dollars capital gain for seventeen to twenty years before you actually ever start paying capital gains. to so actually, you know, uh, uh, ex- exhaust that exemption. Um, and you know, when it when it, for example, retired folks, uh, that's a big deal to them. You know, being able to to, you know, use that exemption before they actually have to write. You know. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. So, anything you do to push those, you know, paying those capital gains uh, towards the end of the transaction, the the better it is for everybody that's in that situation.
0: You must have a lot of people that say to you, "What what's the what's the return going to look like versus investing in the stock market? Obviously, a little bit more volatile, but how was that? What what is your kind of general response to that?" Yeah, so I mean, you know, some of these people are going to
1: get you know five to seven percent IRRs, right? Um, And those decrease over time because the principal balance drops as people you know get deeper into these transactions. Um, And it's totally true, you know. I mean, in terms of you know, you look at people as either sophisticated or not sophisticated. If you're sophisticated and you're an you know an investor and you're very have a lot of confidence in the market, then take that capital and go dump it into something that's. Uh, that's more sophisticated that that and in, in which you're willing to take more risk, right? The the market vaporizes there. There's nothing left to grab, right? It's gone. Yeah. Um with a a piece of real estate, it's you know a very non-sophisticated person can feel comfortable with it. They can see it, touch it, drive by it, whatever. Um, and yes, they will ger- generate a a smaller yield, but if the if the market vaporizes, meaning that their buyer can no longer pay them anymore, then they can recapture the property back. And do it again right and there's something to be said for you know most people aren't sophisticated investors and so when you have somebody that's like hey i can see it touch it drive by it i know it's there it's not gonna run away um i'm more comfortable with that than i am just taking my capital pumping it you know giving it to a financial advisor or pumping it into to a market that'd be you know crazy for somebody that's not sophisticated
0: in that that space yeah so it's really that asset backed. Uh, investment, like you said, where you've got the ability—if it vaporizes, you've got something physical that you can work with again, recapture. Yeah, and the other thing too is like you know, with
1: with everything that's happened and the and in the industry, you know, just based on the banking failures, I think are, uh, you know, our society is has, is basically has a little less trust in the banking industry than we did you know two months ago, right? And so um, I think that. That's where I think fintech will sort of emerge. Is where you know people can manage these uh, these opportunities directly. You know they have more of a pulse. Like there's a lot of people that lost a lot of their net worth in investment products and, and these bank failures. And uh, it's not a cash thing. It's not deposits cash in a bank. It's actual investments that are covered by the FDIC. And so uh, this, for example uh would protect you from from those types of you know scenarios
0: so uh last little bit on on this deed is um is is this primarily a a sas product that the sellers work with, or is there actually uh advisors humans that are working with the the sellers
1: yes, so um we have of my rate of services, we basically do everything seller finance. So we don't advise, you know, we're we're not financial advisors, we're not lawyers, you know, we we yeah. expect people to come with their own advisors. But we are a great strategists, right? So we don't advise anyone. We would just we basically say, hey, given your situation based on what we know, if this were me, this is what I would do. But validate that with your attorney and your financial advisor and make sure that, you know, this suits you. Um and I don't expect that we'll we'll really start getting into, uh, you know uh, providing those types of advisory services anytime soon. But um, essentially what we if if you look at, you know the kind of the let's just say like the the bar stool uh, uh, one of our mentors is like, yeah, you've got kind of got like a bar stool business here, which is like you know, you have a buyer, you have a seller, and you have basically capital, right? And so our platform basically brings the, those three components together. If you have a buyer, and for whatever reason they don't conform through the traditional lending, you know, uh, arena, uh, then they've got to find some other way to get into home ownership, whether it's a rent-to-own or a seller finance deal or whatever. And the hardest part is actually finding these properties. So we provide an experience. Our app, you can download it today. Uh, we're in, you know, about a handful of cities, seven different metropolitan cities, where folks can look for what we call high equity. Properties that are either on market or off market, and then we make it really easy for these buyers to, you know, to put together a proposal quickly that fits within their budget, and they can deliver it either by hand through USPS or they can hire us to deliver it with like a box of cookies or whatever, um, and say, you know, basically present the proposal to the property owner and say, hey, if you're ever looking to sell, I would be willing to buy at these terms. You do that 50 or 100 times, somebody's eventually going to say yes, and that's where your opportunity resides. Uh, from the seller's perspective, the person that owns the property, they need tools to be able to manage the arrangement and access liquidity, taking their future payments and convert those into cash today so that they can solve whatever immediate problem they have. Our tools connect with private investors. So these are either you know all accredited folks, where we have about 4,000 of them inside of our platform today. And anytime we have a seller that's like, hey, I need liquidity, They hit a button. We blast out to four thousand different, you know, uh, investors, and then they can reach back out and say, "Hey, I'm interested. What do you have?" Right, and then we help. We bring those two people together, and they transact, you know, independently outside of us.
0: That's great. So, uh, you you touched on a little bit about the future of fintech, and and of course, the future of honest Mm -hmm. deed. But what what do you see over the next decade? Knowing that so much has happened in such a quick time. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you would know better than me, but it feels like the last couple of years things have really, you know, heated up, but what do you see over the next decade for fintech, uh, as a whole? Well,
1: I see a lot of consolidation. That's for sure. Um, you have a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, products that, you know, solve very specific needs in in the market. And I think those will eventually start to roll up and kind of rebank, I think is what, uh, what I would call them. Basically what fintech is doing is it's compression that, Compressing the time, the complexity, and the cost uh, associated with you know traditional institutional banking, like the moving capital around, uh, you know, asking for capital, uh, you know, in terms of borrowing and lending, um, fintech companies are solving a lot of those problems in their own way, dealing with risk in their own way, and it's putting a lot of compression on the institutions. And I think the institutions will probably start moving away from consumer. And then we'll see a new era of, you know, uh, digital banks or, uh, you know, uh, consolidate and come together and be kind of like the consumer bank, but at much, uh, much better speed, uh, much better
0: risk management and, you know, um, much better service for consumers. So then tell us a little bit about where you see Honest Deed fitting in, in the future of everything that we just talked about. Yeah, I think that
1: um, I mean it's it's really hard to tell where exactly we will fit in. I think ultimately, um, our business is all about reducing friction to access liquidity from either the the lender side or the borrower side. The lender has debt that they might need to sell off to get cash, and the and, and the borrower has equity that they might need to sell off without taking on another payment to access cash and managing. You know that you know that uh, activity, so that we're not putting either the borrower or you know the lender or the borrower at risk, is kind of, I think, going to be our sweet spot because there's an LTV. You know, between buying or selling off equity and selling off debt, there has to be enough value in the middle of that transaction to protect everybody. Um, And so, I think as we figure out where we fit in, is going to be you know, helping people privately bank. Uh, their equity and their debt to other people that want to be involved in it. You know, I think that's where we kind of fit in. Now well, that that's, I'm hoping that, that we just, you know, gobble that chunk of, of business. So we become the go-to for, you know, privately banking your buyer. Cause, uh, there is a lot of benefit in that, uh, for, for, for
0: sellers. Well, I, yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I've, I've learned a lot just in this 30 minutes with you and I feel like there's a lot more to come and and I look forward to seeing honest deed as as on the forefront of all of that and really helping educate the public on this and really being the the solution for those that are interested in seller financing
1: uh, yeah, i'll lead you I'll lead you with that uh, actually one one thing that I thought that was that I think is really important, um, which is you know, people ask like, well why would i why would somebody want to seller finance? um and the reason being is because not everything fits within a 15-year or 30-year container or with one interest rate, right? And so when you bring a buyer and a seller together, they can actually negotiate the interest rate, the down payment, and the term. And so um, with with a seller finance transaction, you might have a buyer that's like, hey, in order for this transaction to fit within my you know my budget, I have to do a deal that's you know 34.5 years, right? So 34 years six months. I have this much for a down payment. And would you be okay with the interest rate starting at, you know, 8% because I'm more risked now, but over time, would you be willing to drop it every month to 4% until I get 15 years in the deal? So seller finance gives both buyer and seller a lot more flexibility over the transaction and, you know, from a, from a cost standpoint, a duration standpoint, and, uh, uh, a dollar out of pocket today, stand when entry cost is what we call it. So, I think that that's one thing that was really important from you know me being a, an operator of a you know seller finance you know type of business is to put that out there so that folks can at least you know pro and con
0: it out uh, as to to why somebody would even be interested in this. Yeah. And that's, that's so great. Uh, you know, technology and, and, your platform together, giving people that flexibility to, uh, so we're not so tied into the traditional kind of 15, 30 year, uh, Lincoln like mentioned. So that's, that's amazing. So, and that I, I can see that being way more, uh, beneficial in, in the future as, as technology every single year, just keeps getting better and better and faster and more flexible. Uh, yeah, I I agree. Yeah. Uh yeah, I am looking forward to uh to learning more and, and uh uh this is a future driven podcast. So I want to know Raphael at the end of it in the future, what will you be driving? Uh in terms of I, I leave it pretty open ended. You know, obviously some people go towards automobile, but it could be company based, it could be mission, but what will you be driving in, in the future?
1: I mean a, a bike, right? Bike is a bike is the ultimate freedom. Uh, Operate on your own power. No, I think that like you know my mission is really about you know uh, access. I think homeownership has has a lot to do with not only just building equity and everything else, but it also has a lot to do with like mental health. Right? Uh, We, all of us people, need a refuge, and I think there's a whole tranche of our society that's gotten left out from a banking perspective. And I get that. I'm really passionate about this topic of like small dollar mortgages. So banks aren't writing small dollar mortgages. So those that don't have you know uh, significant incomes are being left out of the purchasing experience, and therefore they're left to rent, and they never really build any equity, um, and they get kind of pushed out of these areas that gentrify over time. So my whole thing will be you know, driving the mission of helping those that don't conform in this, this world to get into equitable positions in real estate and help them climb out of this, uh, you know, this society that they feel that they
0: might be stuck in or part of society that they feel they might be stuck in. That's awesome. Uh, Dale Bennett, CTO and CEO of Honest D. Thanks so much for coming on the future Driven podcast. You got it, man. Thank you. Thank you.